I ask myself with everything I do every day, did I get better? Did I get better as an individual? Did we get better as an organization? Did we get better as a, as a society? Do I know more today than I did yesterday? Yeah. Correct. The powerful thing is that you don't compare yourself to others. You compare yourself to yourself. What's up, folks? I'm your host, Adley Christoffels, and you're listening to A Curious Life, the show where we delve into how the trait of curiosity has impacted the lives and careers of our guests. Campfire-like discussions that serve as a window into the essence of who they are. Today's guest, Oliver Schabenberger, is without question one of the most inspiring leaders, innovators, and public speakers I know, and someone I feel honored to consider as both friend and mentor. So today, we get a sneak peek at what influences the thinking of a man who has had such a significant impact on the world of data and analytics. Welcome to the show, Oliver. It's an absolute honor to have you on. Thank you, Hadley. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm delighted to be on A Curious Life, and I'm curious what we're going to talk about in this podcast. <laughs> well, well, as you know, like Peter Pan's shadow, we're going to go off and find the essence of Oliver today, Ooh. so be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious what that essence is. Okay, let's do it. So, you know, this is a show where we, we look for a window into the lives of our guests. What makes you tick? Uh, and, and essentially to understand the essence of you and to understand how the trait of curiosity has impacted your life and career. So how we do that is we imagine that we, we're sitting around a campfire sharing stories about our life and tag, you're it. So where we'll start is where you were born, whether you had siblings, you know, what were your parents like? What was your early life like? Uh, and we'll take that all the way through to today and on to tomorrow. But before we do that, the question that I ask all my guests is, what does curiosity mean to you? Well, I think curiosity is something innate in all humans to different degrees. To me, it's a quality that relates to exploration, uh, inquisition, and learning, you know, the drive to find out about something. It's really the, the pursuit of knowledge. I sometimes call it lifelong learning. Um, but to me, it's about this drive to continuously improve and get better at something. Awesome. And and do you do you think that's innate in children and suppressed as you get older or just innate in the individual? I think it's innate in individuals, um, but I think you can suppress it and, and you could put blockers around it. And I think we should encourage the opposite. Um, for example, when we when we look at uh, qualities we like to see in individuals we work for, we went from defining skills to emotional quotient. And today it's also something called the adaptability quotient. And that's really the, your ability to ask what if questions instead of what is, right? So what would happen if, what would happen if your top five customers leave you tomorrow? How would you deal with this? The ability to explore something over exploiting something and there is an, an immediate sense of, okay, what do I have available as technology right now? What have we built in the past? Let's start with that and build on top of that. That's exploitation, right? That's building on what you already know versus, okay, let's step back. Let's get give our curiosity some room to roam and imagine what it would be. And sometimes you start from nothing. You start from scratch. And you can actually get you to, to where you need to go faster. 
because you're not encumbered and you're not uh, weight, weighted down by... Preconceptions, I guess, yeah. And the things you've built in the past. You know, the assumption that everything I've done before needs to be reflected in what I do now. That's true. Would you say curiosity is a kind of essential trait for innovation to thrive? It's a part of it. Innovation is actually... My definition of it is to transform curiosity and creativity into value. And there's a lot in those few words to unpack. Creativity is really... That's what creates the spark, you know, the ideation. My curiosity drives me to explore something, and then uh, a creativity uh, um, generates that novel idea. But creativity by itself, something novel, to me, is not innovation. Innovation has to be tied to a value, something I want to pursue in an organization. It could be monetary value, it could be valuation of a company, it could be the purpose, the reason why I'm doing that. To me, if it's very simply, if I ask myself with everything I do every day, did I get better? Did I get better as an individual? Did we get better as an organization? Did we get better as a, as a society? Do I know more today than I did yesterday? Yeah. Correct. The powerful thing is that you don't compare yourself to others. You compare yourself to yourself. Sure, I love that. Am I a better speaker today than I was two months ago? Am I a, a, a better leader? Am I playing an, an instrument better than I did six months ago? That to me matters. That is the continuous improvement. I may pick up woodworking and I will never be a master carpenter. But I can hopefully build furniture in six months better than I do today. And that to me is incredibly satisfying, that journey. But, um, but I think comparing yourself against yourself yesterday is a fantastic way of going about growth, personal growth. Yeah, it is, it, that is to me the, the manifestation of a growth mindset. I just want to go back to something you said earlier. Would you say then that curiosity is, is really finding the question and creativity is how you would go about answering those questions? Curiosity is what makes me pursue a question, uh, wants me to dig into something. It creates more knowledge by doing so. And creativity is how I take that new knowledge and turn it into something interesting and novel. Sure. So curiosity is, I might be curious about finding out about electric cars. Oh, I want to broaden my horizon. What's there to know? What do I need to know about electric cars? A uh, specific curiosity would be, I want to know exactly what the, how the batteries work on an electric car yep. going deep, right? And so you can be curious without a problem to solve. Curiosity does not need a problem, but it helps. It's often triggered that, okay, I need to accomplish something. I have a problem to solve. Something needs to be improved. And because of that, we start uh, that exploration. We start pursuing knowledge and, and learning about something. And then there has to be some sort of, sort of a creative spark, an idea, a solution to the problem at the end. But I think curiosity by itself without a problem is incredibly useful. Being curious about something and going deeper within something kind of puts you into a frame of mind or into a framework that sparks an idea of, hey, now that I know this, now that my knowledge is more complete in an area, I might tie it to something else that I've learned before. And hey, now I can bring these two things together and it's innovation, right? I found that innovation teams are um, very productive if they have the right blend of this general curiosity and specific curiosity. 
um, about going after a specific problem by then allowing themselves, allow their curiosity to roam, let their curiosity be curious. Um, so it, I work really well with engineers that um, know exactly what's going on in the engine and how to improve the engine and go deep. And I sometimes just step back and maybe it's part because I don't have formal training in a lot of the things I'm doing. Then I ask different questions. I say, what if, what if we could hook up this system with that system? And that system? They have never been combined, but what would happen if? Sometimes people are restricted by not wanting to expose themselves when actually most of the time everybody around you is asking the same question. You know, and, and I found that that having the confidence to simply ask means that very quickly you you accumulate knowledge that might not be as deep as each composite part, but the value is in understanding the whole. So the question is, do you think that a lack of self-confidence sometimes can stop people from asking questions? Um, yes, I don't know if it's lack of self-confidence or if it's um, not being vulnerable enough. There's a certain vulnerability that's required to think big because he might this might not work. And uh, this this may have no legs at all, you know, this project or combining these technologies is just not meaningful, shouldn't be done or can't be done. Um, but again, we sometimes are bounding ourselves, but by the things we know how to build. Yeah, this or oh, this would be really, really hard. Ooh, this would be a really tough project. Yes. I mean, <laughs> that's why we call them, that's why we call them moonshots. That's we don't do that every day. These are big bets. Um, so the trick is to allow yourself to explore, allow yourself to get started and build in the 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 the, the milestones and the triggers and the decision points that tell you, mm, yeah. That was the best bad idea we've had all week, sir. And admit that and stop doing it. But you've learned something in the process. You've you probably learned something about what your technology can or cannot do or what is possible, what's not possible. <clears throat> you ruled out hypotheses and you're better for it. So so now, now let's find out the path that got you to this thinking. <laughs> so give us a little bit of insight into the young Oliver and family life. <laughs> young Oliver. Okay. Yeah, I was born in 1965 in Germany, the Black Forest. Um, I have two brothers. I'm the middle child. So I have middle child syndrome, which means that I know how to navigate <laughs> extremes. Um, I'm, I'm Generation X. I, I grew up in a very loving family in the Black Forest. I went to you know normal schooling in 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 Germany. I started. Uh, school actually a year earlier than than my peers. There was an aptitude test whether I would be able to start school at age five rather than I think age six, which was normal. And for some odd reason, I passed that. And so, for thirteen years throughout the, uh, my uh, the schooling in Germany, I was always one year younger than everyone, which was an interesting experience. When I graduated, when I got my Abitur, as it's called in Germany, uh, when I graduated from high school, I was also a year younger than everybody else and um, too young to serve in the military as was required at the time. <clears throat> so I got to uh, start my uh, first education post up uh, to education. And, um, and so that was actually very fortuitous for me. So I could, uh, I could go through those four years of education. And then actually by the time I got to the next uh, waypoint, my younger brother was kind enough to have served me. Um, so I was continuing on right away. 
I choose a profession at the time. I choose to study something. I remember I was sitting on the on the porch with my dad, and we were talking about uh, what path should I choose. And uh, he hunted. He was a hobby hunter in, in in Germany, and I liked to be out in the woods with him. And maybe it was part of pleasing dad. Um, and I choose forestry as a as my professional path. Ah, I see. So, 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 just just to pick up on something there. So, so you said to please dad. Tell us a bit more about your parents and their influence. Loving parents had a wonderful protective childhood. You know, uh, um, one of the things that I always remember to this day is my mom. My mom's hurt when she was not able to pursue the kind of education that she wanted. She wanted to go to college, and that was not possible for her. And so she was determined that her kids would have any educational opportunity there is. We could study anything we want um, for as long as we want, whatever discipline. And um, it, that was just wonderful influence and, and the support we got for that. So I was lucky to go through two postgraduate uh, experiences in, in Germany and then come to the United States for a doctorate. And um, I really studied until I was about age 30. So if you Put it together. It was 25 years. Wow! When I went to school, nonstop education. So would you say that that your mom and kind of the drive behind that was was a big influence in your your passion and love for the world of academia? Yes, and for learning, and for learning, and for there's always something else to be picked up. So you know, today I'm chief innovation officer of Single Store, a software company, a database company. Before I was CEO and CTO of SaaS analytics company. And I started in forestry. So there's, how, how do you bridge that? So when I look back and it's, when you look in the rear view mirror, it all makes a lot of sense, right? You say, oh yeah, this was that decision that led me from here to there. And it, it, it's, it doesn't look like an, um, such a strange path. But if you, if you had a time machine and you would go back and think about a conversation I had with my dad at, at age 17, you couldn't plot that. So I tell you what, let's take that time machine back to when you were a kid. So let's let's get on that time machine. Let's go back. So so we have a young Oliver, you know, loving house, middle child syndrome, and you know, the sense of of lifelong learning and curiosity instilled and encouraged within you as a child. Right. So so younger life. And I guess as you say, normal schooling, and I'm assuming that's all the way through through primary school as well as through high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything in that kind of early life that you that you would say sparks a memory of how curiosity has played a part um, into creating one of those memorable moments? Or do we go to that point where you're 17 in this conversation with your dad? How do we get to that point? I don't think of myself as a super curious child or having a you know, super curious childhood. As I came toward, towards the end of my high schooling in Germany, there were some some things that it clicked for me. For example, I had periods in where I was not very good at math, <clears throat> periods where I was incredibly good at math. And I remember in a math exam, it was one of those, you have three subjects that you study very deeply, and what I mean was math, history, and something else. Um, and then you take long, long exams in, in, in those areas. And I remember I was in one exam that had to do with functional analysis. And I looked at the problem. And I remember when I, something occurred to me that if I apply something from 
geometry, I can solve this problem. That would be an unconventional way of going about it, but I knew that was the right solution. So I did. And all of a sudden, you know, it occurred to me how these things that you study in isolation are not isolated. We just have not connected them. Well, I have not connected them in my in my thinking, in my brain. And by doing this, I actually all, all of a sudden was a better mathematician because it enriched the way I was able to solve that particular problem. Absolutely. And that, that triggered something. And I, I knew those connections are incredibly valuable. And they're probably that there are a lot of connections out there that need to be made and I have not yet made. Let's go back to this, the 17-year-old Oliver now uh, and, and this, this conversation with your dad. Why, why is that conversation so memorable? Because I taught at universities uh, before I uh, joined SAS in 2002, and I often get asked by students, so what should I do? How should I choose my professional path? Should I focus on this area or that area? And I think back to that conversation, and I enjoyed that part of my that, that education in forestry a lot. The reason why I chose that particular program was because it was really, really difficult to get into. It was actually a government program. You're a government employee as you go through those four years of forest management training. Getting into it was difficult, but once you're in, you kind of guaranteed a job at the end. So it was kind of high risk getting in, but then good reward. So I sort of thought, yeah, I like to be in the woods and I like to take a chance on this. If I get in, it's kind of a sign, isn't it? Because you have to go through days and days of of testing and rigorous examinations, whether you whether they, whether you get into the program. So it's sort of confirmation that I've made the right choice. So I used it, the 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 examinations as sort of a proving ground, or you know, to vet myself against that aspiration. In hindsight, how can you make a decision about your professional life at that age? That was not possible. You don't know what you need to know. What you don't know, what you don't know. And why that is that conversation was so important is because I thought at the time this was exactly what I wanted to do. And what I needed to open myself up to is if you go down that path, all the other things that come your way that you might see that might interest you and you might want to pursue those as well. So to keep yourself open to make changes now in in the in the culture i grew up in you take a path you choose a path and you're very likely staying with that path so for me to you know at age 27 leave germany move my life to the united states uh, come here um that was a big step it was not it's not a usual not not usual for the you know this sort of the environment in which i i grew up in it was the first time I was on a plane. I've never flown. When I came to the US, that was the first time I stepped on an airplane. And so that was a pretty big step, you know, leaving the country. And So actually, I mean, I just want to quickly go back there, right? My son goes to high school this year in September. And, you know, I'm still thinking, what? <laughs> For real? <laughs> but he asked me this question at 10, well, now 11 years old. And, you know, well, how do I know that? What I'm going to do? You know, I, I know it's only a few years, but do I need to make a decision? And, and it's already. And I was like, actually, you know, exactly what you were just saying. Essentially, what I told him is, look, find a passion or find something that is of interest to you that will get you up in the morning, that 
will kind of enable you to to give it everything you have because whatever you do you do it with all your heart and you give it everything you got but be curious throughout that process because i think curiosity does in fact lead to discovery let me give you the real life example of how that happens so i finished that first four years uh, of forest management school i did really well I had a meeting with the personnel director and I was assumed he was going to pat me on the back and great job, Oliver. And here's your beat. This is where you're going to work in the black forest. And I went in, you know, all proud of my accomplishment. And he said, Oliver, please go away. Hmm? You can have a job here, but I suggest you go now to the university and study for science for four years. Um, you will not be happy in this role that I'm about to give you. Oh, wow. And I was shocked. I was there was a there was a punch to the gut. I thought, what has just happened? I did everything I was asked for. I aced all the tests. I know everything. I'm ready to rumble. Yeah. And he said, "You're too curious. You ask too many questions. This will not be satisfactory to you. This you will not be happy in this role." I mean, you've got to respect that in him. I mean, even after four years, and and yet he has the guts and the ah, just the heart to tell you this. When people ask me about mentorship, I always say mentors are not just people who open doors for you. A good mentor is also someone who knows when to close a door. That's deep, man. And shows you a different path. So I was crushed, and my mom said, "Well, great, you go to the university now." Okay, do you know I was I was young I, I was you know one year younger than my peers at the time okay so now I'm a little bit older than everybody who's joining the university program right out of, out of, out of college right out of high school man eh, uh, that's that's fine um, for a change I won't be the youngest that's cool um, the, the difference is you get in the university getting in is relatively easy in a forestry program at least at the time in Germany getting a job is really really hard so you go from this relatively safe place to a to a very unsafe place. How did your psyche change at that point? There's uncertainty, uncertainty, and there's a sense like, okay, I just proved myself. Okay, that just went away. I need to prove yeah. myself again. It's going to be a different environment, okay. different peers, different way of learning. Um, the stakes are higher, but I'm open to it. I can do it. But I should not they should not let that uh, lead to a false sense of security that this is not going to be hard work. There's going to be subjects early on that I have to learn that I was never that comfortable with in high school, you know, biology, zoology, organic, inorganic chemistry. You have to get past that in order to... What's this new course, sorry? For science. Okay, cool. For science at the university, and I studied in, in Freiburg. But back to the point you made about and finding that thing and allowing your curiosity to go off. There was a lot of overlap in the subjects, and it felt a little bit like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're talking about the same silver culture book I read. That's fine. Cool. So what's new around here? What's different? And there was this one course. It was called Forest Biometry. At the time, biometry meant the application of statistics and analytics to biological data. In that case, the biological data were trees. So there are a number of questions, analytical and quantitative questions that foresters ask a lot about what's the volume of a tree? What's the volume of timber in a stand, for example? Um, there's a lot of modeling, a lot of data collection. There's a lot of planning, forecasting, estimation. 
Oh, that's interesting. That was a discipline that was completely outside of what I'd learned before. So my specific curiosity was, I want to learn more about this. And then it connected me back to the back end of high school when I was good at math. And I found ways in which I could solve a mathematical problem by connecting things. And I said, oh, that's cool. This has to do with numbers and charts and graphs. And there's some inference here. I can use numbers to answer a question. I can collect data. And there's things called distribution and statistical tests that allow me to confirm a hypothesis. Oh, that's that's very cool. And was was this your first foray into the kind of world of data and analytics to answer questions? Yes, absolutely. That was my first exposure. And so I, I love that. And I started working actually at the Forest Biometry Institute at the University of Freiburg and, um, while studying. I got to know the professor there and his doctorate students and the research they're working. That's, that exposed me to programming. For the second time before, I was hacking around and on a Commodore 64. Nice. And then all of a sudden, there were racks and serious computing equipment, you know. Our iPhones are probably 100 times more powerful today than, than they were in, in the 80s. And that was cool. You could write code and you could program to solve a problem with data. I also, for the first time, I saw a software called SAS. Oh, I see. Who? That was a doctor student who was programming in SAS and he was uh, he was doing an analysis of, um, uh, I, I forgot what it was. It had to do with forest ecology, and he was using SAS to, to analyze the data. And I thought, this looks really difficult. I think it's easier if I just write my own code. And I was getting into the analysis of categorical data, um, counts, and, and things like that. And I started to write a uh, um, write a little software package myself on a VAX on, uh, to analyze uh, uh, um, log linear models. For example, imagine two raters rating the same items from one to five and then how well do they agree? Uh, that got me into programming. I loved it. And then towards the end of my studies, um, the professor at, was Professor Peltz at the University of Freiburg in, the, in, in that Institute of Biomedicine suggested that um, I should do my dissertation work. I should do a doctorate in forest science. And uh, he would love to have me here in Freiburg. Uh, he had a master's degree from Virginia Tech, a master's of science, and he suggested I should also look elsewhere. And, you know, um, he had some pro professional contacts. Just at the right time, he hosted a uh, in the international meeting of forest researchers from the UFRO, the International Union of Forest Research Organization in Freiburg. And I thought, what a great opportunity to sit for a couple of days to uh, uh, talks on forest biometry and other topics and forest research. And I loved it. I ate it up. Were, were there any connections from a networking perspective? Yeah, I didn't understand most of the things that were presented there, but there was somebody. It was the days of the transparencies. He had a prep projector and he started writing and it was a five-fold summation. I remember some over I, J, K, L, and, and there was a sampling estimator and, I, and then we went through the derivation and proof of theorems, and I thought, wow, I don't understand what he's doing, but I know that I want to do this, and I know that this is the person I want to study this with, and that's, we made the connection there, his name is uh, Professor Timothy Gregoire, at the time he was at uh, Virginia Tech, I said, wherever this guy is studying, wherever he, I can, that's where I'm going, so it's probably 
1990, 1991. Okay, cool. And this is how many years into your second your second degree? That's the end of the second. I started my doctorate in 92. So that was a, after I graduated, I worked there at the Institute for a while. We made the connection and then you went through the, you know, the, the application process and all that. It was a normal application process, but it helped me. I mean, I was not just applying to a program generically. You know, I was applying to work with a specific individual in that program. It helped a lot. It was one of the best forest biometry programs around. There's no question. But specifically, I wanted to learn from Tim, Tim Gregoire. One of his strengths is he. there is a sampling uh, sort of community, a sampling thinking. I, how do I collect data about something and to draw inferences from it and then make good estimations? Um, and then there is a modeling side of things where you actually build models that capture the essence of a data generating mechanism. And then you use that model to learn something about the world. And you will find people working in one or the other area, but he navigated both of them. And that was really appealing to me. That was interesting to me. The research I did on my dissertation was exactly about that sort of data that was measured repeatedly. What made it a little bit more difficult, the measurements were not of a continuous attribute, like a, the diameter of a tree. It was a rating like a health rating. So people would look at, for example, the crown of a tree that maybe has a disease, uh, it's attacked by bark beetles or something, and then assign the health of the, the tree to one of five categories. So now if you do this repeatedly, if you assign the tree a three, category three today and category three two weeks from now, how much of this is actually just due because you measured it in in within two weeks and the disease does not progress very much or is not diseased at all um and how much is it really a change in in the health of the tree so to tweezle let out what is temporal dependency whether what is really a change in the condition that's that's the sort of thing i was working on that's fascinating so so i tell you what what something i absolutely want to kind of get to is is this break from the norm. So that was your dissertation and that was at Virginia Tech already, right? But we got to go back to Germany just for a second. Yep. Just curious to understand how that was received. Uh, I'm assuming, you know, it was the air, yeah, go for it. Exactly. Son, or how, how did that play out? I said, that sounds great. That's wonderful. What, what an opportunity. We'll, we'll be heartbroken if you leave. We won't see you as much. But we'll be happy because you are, yeah. Yes. yes. I mean, nothing but support right and going back to what i described about my parents uh, especially my mom my mom i said yes there's an opportunity to, to study and she loved the idea of you know make getting to the very top of our disciplines and having highest degrees and uh, a doctorate and then later i became a professor was very very proud of that awesome and although in, you know, in the U.S., professor is a working title. I was a professor for as long as I was at the university. And when I left, that went away. Tenure went away. She still likes to think of me as Professor Dr. Oliver Schadenberg, although it's, I'm not. Professor. <laughs> oh, nice one. So you've got the supportive family. But now I want to kind of get into just the process itself, right? You how old at this point? So, so what would that make you? 25 or 6 years? 27. 27. 27 when I came to the US. So so 27-year-old German lad grew up in the Black Forest and 
now you're following a dream and you're going to the land of the free. <laughs> what was that like? I mean, we're talking different cultures, you know, the process of first time you're on a flight, right, into a new world that, that is unknown. What was that experience like? It was very disorienting at first, very disorienting. I went into it thinking that in my upbringing, I had a lot of American influence. You know, we would watch American shows, sometimes in English, and of course, listen to listen to music in English. We would talk, speak English at the university, sometimes in, you know, not always, but in matters of science, it was a common language. I just thought that the, the cultures would be more similar. And then not. So it's not what you see on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I went through I went through a serious culture shock coming here, and I was seriously unhappy. Did you speak a lot of English back in Germany, or or was this part of the learning curve now as well, as speaking more English? I had the the benefit of had uh, nine years of English in school, so from uh, for nine uh, in for nine of my thirteen years of school, and there was always English, and so uh, it was mostly British English as we were taught. So the color has an extra letter in it. <laughs> but understanding the language, speaking the language was uh, not a major problem. Um, but it was still interesting. Your vocabulary is not fit to, you know, to, to, do, to do, do the everyday things. I was, I was okay within the university uh, environment, but you know, you're in rural Virginia and you step out of this and you all of a sudden, you're like, what did you say? <laughs> it doesn't go that great. Interesting when, as an immigrant, as when you, you sort of, your thinking switches, your subconscious switching, it switches and your mind switches. And I, I, I remember, I don't dream much, but when I, I probably do, but I just don't remember my dreams. And when I would dream at that time, and I remember my dreams, I thought they were really, really silly simplistic stories you know the cat in the hat kind of thing because i didn't have enough vocabulary to <laughs> put together a good story one of the differences for example was um we knew that in, in in america people tend to be on first name basis germany you're not you are with your peers uh, but in a professional setting there are strict rules that come from the language and how you interact interact and they convey hierarchy and you don't break them. You know, for example, to address somebody on first name basis, you're being offered sort of the privilege and that comes usually from a more senior person. And so it felt like the society in the United States is more buddy, buddy, you know, we're all pals because we, we use we on first name basis. It's not at all. There are plenty of nuances in the language that establish distance hierarchy and all that. You have to learn those. You have to understand. So what, what would you say uh, those nuances are? Uh, they still come from office, title, clothing, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. seniority. And you observe those. You have to learn to observe those. You can't just uh, pretend they've gone away. And so being on a first-name basis here does not necessarily mean the same thing as being on a first-name basis in Germany. Right? It's a small, it seems like a small thing, but in your daily interactions, it it matters. It matters. And do, do you think the structure back in Germany maybe made it easier to slot into uh, kind of the, 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 the general approach to, to hierarchies? I don't know. Was it just different? It's the only thing you've experienced for 27 years. That's your normal, right? 
And so you step from your normal into a different environment, a different uh, social fabric. Okay. Um, you don't bring your normal with you, but be sensitive and try to learn a new normal, right? Um, so I was, uh, I was really, really fascinated uh, by American culture. I wanted to learn more for it. I said, American football, what's that all about? All right, let's let, all right. And today I, I love American football. And if I have a choice between watching a soccer match and football, I watch football. I'm still trying to understand the rules of American football. I just know the whole team gets changed all the time. Like, whoa, where's everybody going? <laughs> well, when COVID is over, we, we get together and I'll walk you through a game. You watch a game with me. That's what I did with a friend at, at, uh, at school. He said, I said, come on, explain this to me. And uh, he, he took me through the games. And I also learned a lot of interesting words when he was not so happy about what happened on the football <laughs> field. So it was a very, it's an, it was an enriching, enriching experience that expanded my horizons in, in, in many, many ways. So I really, I try to immerse myself and, 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 and learn. You, you have to, I think that's part of the fun, right? I want to go back to something, something that you mentioned, that initial period of being in a different country, kind of without that usual support system around you can sometimes lead to a place that you can be a little bit unhappy. What is it that you think made you unhappy? And what was the point at which that changed? Uh, part of it, I think, was homesickness, loneliness, and just being away from your customer and uh, the environment you're used to. There is a certain uncertainty about it. You know, you am I here for a limited time or not? Right? You, you're on a student visa, <clears throat> so it is kind of boxed in. You come here, you do your studies, but then what? Am I staying? Am I not staying? Um, well, it also depends on what I'm successful. What am I? If I'm not successful, what am I going back to? So there's a lot of question marks. It feels feels uncertain. And having studied for at the time I was I said 27, uh, 22 years in the German system, I knew American uh, postgraduate education is very different. You know, even the fact that there's a campus at the University of Freiburg, the the, the university buildings blend into the city. Uh, our, one of our lecture halls was in the back of a church, so we would listen to uh, a lecture on soil for zoology, and you know, organ would go off. It's just, I thought that's normal. That's the way you study. Gotcha. Um, and then to be on a campus, and it felt more competitive, many more assignments, and a lot more grading. And I, this is serious stuff. Um, and I have to again, I have to prove myself again. In addition, uh, Tim, my, my major professor, and I, we, when we put my curriculum together, almost all of it was in the statistics department, highly quantitative. And some was in the econometrics department, simply because Tim wanted me to also get exposure to quantitative things uh, applied in other disciplines. So I, I felt an extra pressure, not just for proving myself as worthy in this in the forced biometry program, but I was now uh, working with and kind of competing against majors in statistics. They've chosen statistics as their discipline. They're here to get a master's or a doctorate degree in statistics, and I'm kind of this interloper from another uh, department who spends who takes courses with them. It's not uncommon, but it ended up my curriculum was pretty much the same. I was those were my new peers. Understood. 
very different. Except your background leading up to it was very different, whereas they were focused on statistics right from the offset. And it felt like there was a gap I had to make up. This is something I've always talked about when it comes to lifelong learning. I get to points where in my in my growth or in my career or in my life where I'm pretty good at something. And then you transition, you grow out of this, you go into another role. And while you do similar things on the surface, or you think you're applying the same skills, or maybe it's actually a secondary skill that got you to that next step. All of a sudden, you find yourself surrounded by people who do this as a job, who have formal training in it. That happened, for example, when I left academia to go to, to SAS to be a software developer. Compared to my colleagues, I think I was a pretty good programmer in academia. I could uh, write slang pretty good code. Um, all of a sudden, I will, my new colleagues were professional software engineers, professional developers who've done this for a long time. And I knew I am not working at their level right now. But I need to get there and maybe push beyond. But that's sort of, that's a condition of participation. You cannot be a, a a professional software developer unless you write software at, at that level. And this is enterprise software. This is this is serious stuff. Similar when I came from Germany and started studying and, and, at Virginia Tech, compared to my colleagues at, at Forest Science, I was a good forest biometrician. I knew methods and methodology and could write code that they were not that they didn't know. But it didn't matter anymore. Here I was in a group of, uh, of professional statisticians going for graduate degrees in statistics. That was my new normal. And I had to get up to that level. And that required extra work, that required extra efforts. There was some remediation that I needed to do, um, but it's also incredibly satisfying if you, if you do it, to get there. I was just I was just going to ask I mean don't you look back at those moments and go actually I'm thankful for those because you know th- those moments of learning those those moments where you go eek I am <laughs> I'm in the deep end yeah and I need to do what I do in order to get out of it right and normally you kind of keep that trajectory and and you do you know kind of go beyond as you say but those are moments of great learning when there's an internal clock that says you, you got to step up. But but those are often the, the times when you learn the most is when you are compelled to. And it is liberating when you find that you're not boxed in, right? That you have skills right now and there are boundaries to your skills. Um, but first of all, you may not have found them yet. Yeah, yeah. You have not pushed up against those boundaries. And when you find them, you can push them out, right? Yes. And how liberating is that? that that doesn't mean we're we're superheroes. That doesn't mean we're Superman or Superwoman and Wonder Woman. That doesn't mean our abilities are limitless. Exactly. But there is still room to push those out. Yes. And there always will be. You know, that's the beauty about it. There's, we can never learn everything. We can never learn enough. Not to say that you, you know, you 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 want to try and learn all things at once, but it's comforting to know that there will always be something that you don't know. So, so let's just quickly get to, so, so we, you've got your doctorate now. Let's see if we push through that, right? Um, you've got your doctorate. What happens next? You were saying that you still worked in the land of academia and you were professor for a period of time. Is that what followed? And was that at Virginia Tech or at a different university? No, I got my doctorate, but 
um, and I, I got a master's in statistics for doing all that coursework in, in, in the statistics department at Virginia Tech. Um, my doctorate is in forestry and forest products. That's what it said on it. I love statistics so much. It has been, that had become my discipline. And so I wanted to be following in Tim's, my professor's, Tim Gregoire's uh, footsteps. I wanted to be a professor at an, an American research university in statistics. So the, the plan that I had, whatever plan it was, when I came to the US, it was just get the dissertation and then probably return home, had changed. I've now found that discipline. I studied it. I had formal training in it. I loved it. Started to go to to, um, to professional meetings, to write in, in journals. I, I published in statistics journals. I said, I can do this. I'm proving myself. I can do this. But then it turned out it became really, really difficult to land a job. You know, you you walk in with a with a with a doctor that says forestry and forest products, and you want to be in a biostatistics department, you're not necessarily climbing to the top of the list. So I was not successful, and but that was still that was my professional goal. Um, and it it's interesting that this is really one of the few times in in my professional life that I had set myself a goal. That I said, this is what I want to be. How do I get there? Versus I am here. Let me. What happens if I grow out of this? What I'm doing now, right? Or what happens if I'm studying forest science, but I'm focusing on statistics and forest science? I'm focusing on biometry. Um, this was. This is what I want to be. So how do I get there? So I, I worked in biostatistical consulting in Washington D.C. for a year. Um, from there, I landed a job at Michigan State University as a statistician in a crop and soils department, crop and soil sciences department. So it was not in a statistics department, but as a statistician, and it was still connected to plants, crops, soils. So there was a connection um, to, to, to forestry as well. But I, although I had to explain why I could now help them set up a uh, a, 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 a trial on an agricultural experiment station versus, uh, you know, applying the techniques that I use to model the volume of trees. And I was there for three years, and then a, a, a position opened up at Virginia Tech in the stat department, and I applied, and I got that. Is this working with Tim? No, at the time he had he had left. He went, he went to um, Yale University. Okay, where he's a full professor to this day. J.P. Wirehouse, a junior professor. Oh, wow. I came back to Virginia Tech in the department, my alma mater, the same department where I got my, the master's degree. I was so happy. It was like coming home. And some of the, the professors that taught me what I knew about statistics were now my colleagues. And they welcomed me with open arms as their colleagues. That was great. That was it. That was fantastic. Uh, that was 1999. Whereas before the goal was, that's what I want to do. And yes, I might have to use my kind of forestry by, you know, experience alongside statistics to get there or as a conduit. But now it's fully statistics. I had come full circle and I had set myself a professional goal and here it was. Awesome. And then I walked away from it. How long were you, were you at Virginia Tech? Three years. Three years. Okay. 
three years. I was tenured, I think, in 2001. And in 2002, I left and became a software developer at SaaS. A quick shout out to our sponsor, Heights. In their words, Heights makes smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help us take care of our brains so it can take care of us. I came across Heights when I set off on a trip, and surprisingly, it's still going, where I wanted to take better care of mind, body, and soul. So along with doing more exercise, drinking less alcohol, drinking more water, I wanted to be intentional about doing things that would help my mind be sharper. Long story short, I came across Heights and found the short, snappy podcast episodes with qualified experts quite enlightening. But as my wife would no doubt agree, I've always been a huge skeptic when it comes to supplements. I never felt compelled to take it regularly. Even my daughter got involved in trying to make sure I take the ones we have at home, (laughs) but not even that helped. Yet, here I was, receptive to new things, so I took the plunge with an initial three-month subscription, and I'm still a customer today, and feeling great for it. Now I have no doubt that how I feel is as a result of all the changes I made, but I am convinced that the supplement is playing its part. So if you want to give it a go too, wander over to yourheights.com and use a Curious Life 10 at the checkout for a 10% discount. So tell us how you kind of got to, yeah, how did you get to SAS? Well, how did it come up? Again, that was, a, that was not following the norm. SAS is an unusual software company. Um, and I've, I knew the software developer who was working on the tools that I was using in my own research uh, at SAS, Ross Wolfinger. He had started, uh, he built these uh, incredible tools to analyze longitudinal data and spatial data, still my area of research. I was uh, working on a book on spatial data. I was using, I was following his work. I always had to program my own stuff because uh, what I was working on had not just, not yet been incorporated in in, in software that was available. Um, but he would, you know, I would finally figure something out and there was an XSAS release and there it was. So he, I, I stayed very close to him. And uh, when he moved on at SAS to become director of genomics, his role opened up. And so we started talking. And yeah, I thought to myself, what other software company do I know where the tool I'm using on a day-to-day basis can be identified with the person who's leading that research in the world. I don't know of any other, I don't, I, I don't know that, you know. So that made SAS special to me. Also that is a private company. And so I started looking at it. Uh, my wife Lisa and I, we went to visit. Um, we were on campus in Cary, North Carolina headquarters. And I have to say, we came back lukewarm. It was not like we went there and said, oh yeah, this is where I'm gonna go. Um, so we made a long list of pros and cons and put weights to it. Like, you know, nerdy people do. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have your spreadsheet? I had a spreadsheet <laughs> and it was a bloody tie. If this would have been 90 to 10. So what swung it? What swung it in Sass's favor? I called up Tim. I called up my major professor who's, who was now at Yale. And I wanted to walk him through my decision process. And that's what a mentor is, knows to open doors, knows to close doors. Um, and I said, Tim, let me run this through it with you. And I thought for sure before I picked up the phone that I would explain where I am, what I'm looking at. And he would say, no, 
he would talk me out of leaving Virginia Tech. Um, because I think he felt a sense of pride as well that I was in the role that I was in at the time, you know, and he, he was in, uh, spent time at Virginia Tech. And after we talked, he said, it's pretty clear what you need to do. You're going to sound. I said, why? He said, because of the impact you will have on your profession. Wow. And he was absolutely right. You know, SaaS being used in tens of thousands of sites and that those tools that I would be working on are so critical in the analysis of longitudinal data, clinical trials. Um, it was just this awareness that when data are dependent, we need to have special tools and we need to, to do that. And being the purveyor and the the maintainer and the developer and researcher of those tools. It's pretty special, man. I knew I had the, the ability to put statistical methods out into uh, into the in, into the field that help people make better decisions at a large scale. Um, and it's in my area of research that I wanted to work in anyway. And all of that came true. All of that was true. So, so this this is essentially now what's the start of a 19-year career at SAS, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the beginning. And again, moving in, I did not have the I did not have a professional goal to become a C-level executive. I did not go to SAS asking myself, okay, so how do I navigate this organization and 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 climb the ladder? I came there to say, I want to write code. I want to work on those tools and I want to make them better. And I want to write new tools for statistical analysis. And I want to go to conferences and tell people about it. And I want to write documentation that teaches people how to use statistics. And that was the goal. Yeah. Because that what that one moment saying, I want to go into statistics. That was the the moment where you go, look, that's it. I want to do stuff in and around that. And I'll see where I go from here, but that's it. And and now you're in this world and you just want to code. You just want to build things that people can use, right? It, and just, it's, it's amazing. That was, one of my, that was one of my biggest worries, making that change is, as I mentioned earlier, I love coding, but do I love it enough? What if this is your day-to-day activity all the time? So will you get tired of it? Will you be able to do it well enough to um, contribute at that level? Okay. Just with, with that in mind, right? What are the key moments for you throughout those 19 years? Because I'm assuming your whole, all the 19 years were filled with curious moments and, you know, because it's that kind of environment. But what would you call out as those key moments? Oh, uh, yeah, there, were, there are several, of course. Um, I started in the statistics group, in the stat group, uh, responsible for the SAS that program a uh, product, and that had really been my world at SAS from the outside. That's what I used in my own work. That's what I used in my research. That you can find that in in the textbooks I've written. That was my tool, and that's the world of SAS I knew. But then once I came in, I realized, oh my God, there is so much more to it. All these other tools and the solution and the product. There are people at SAS that don't know how to run SAS. Right, they do have have other functions. That so my my view of what the that world of analytics was like was just broadened immensely 
uh, once I got sort of a handle after a couple of years on how to write SaaS procedures and how they, how they work, and I said, okay, this thing I'm doing over here with the NL mix procedure, that, that works differently than what I'm doing over here with the proc mix procedure, okay? And I started to think about what happens if you put these different systems that are developed for different classes of analytics or to, to handle different um, types of number crunching. What happens if you put them together? There's some wiring required, you know, and some connections, but wouldn't that be interesting? What was the end result? It's a very powerful procedure that, that came out of it that does a lot of stuff, uh, the Glimix procedure that uh, has incredible capabilities and flexibility to it. And to me, it was a winner. You know, I, I realized again, you know, the, the, the one plus one equals three the power of making those connections, although they seem tenuous at the beginning or why you're doing it, um, and some of them might not work out, this very quickly showed me that um, that we can make create new innovative things by, by drawing connections. So that was cool. Uh, that sort of got me over a hump where my curiosity was, uh, my, that my curiosity monster in me was fed by just reassembling things and finding a better way to do how did that those SaaS procedures work a new way. Then I started uh, working with uh, several teams on uh, around multi-threading and uh, uh, around distributed computing. And one of the things that interested me was how do we take sort of that core analytic engine and deploy it in other parts of the world outside of the SaaS mothership? For example, how could you run some of that inside a database, inside a data warehouse? Or how can you run it on a machine that maybe sits in a data center or a cloud where SaaS is not yet installed, right? The idea is, and that's one of the principles of uh, data and analytics, I, I often talk about analytics follows the data. Don't move the data to analytics. Data movement is a killer. It's a performance killer. It's costly. Bring analytics to where the data sits to avoid the data movement. And the data are, we're moving, the data we're all showing up in different places, data we're sitting in a cloud or in a data center or on the edge. So how can I do analytic processing on that? What is the core capability that I need to move to that point? So we started sort of breaking the mold a little bit in, in decomposing you know, so the, the SaaS engine into more flexible, smaller, uh, 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 composable units called TK extensions, and we start building sort of the critical mass around it, and then adding it. that. That became a, you know a, a TK framework. I didn't start this; others started it, um, but I, I I I contributed to adding analytics to it, it, so that we had a critical mass of capabilities that we could do cool things. At the same time, we were expanding into multi-threading. And then one day I had an email from Dr. Goodnight that he heard that I had made that multi-threading stuff easy. And I went, oh, I did. I have, I'm not sure I did that. And that he was working on a problem and he wanted me to come over to his office and show him what I did. And he was going to show me what he's working on. And he introduced me to a problem that um, one of our customers reported in in calculating the value at risk in a financial portfolio. It's an embarrassingly parallel program, as we call it, because you can calculate the contribution of one line in the portfolio independently from the next one. But we happen to do it serially in a single thread, and that just took too much time. So we said, how can we just 
distributors? How can we do it not just first on you know on one machine and multiple threads, but then we realize that's not enough horsepower. We need to make take multiple machines. So how do we take a grid of machines and time together and distribute the workout? Gotcha. And so that was fascinating work, and that led to what what year was that? Sorry, just to interrupt. Uh, I was about two thousand nine. Okay, and and Doctor Goodnight still programming? Yeah, well, oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, we we started um, working closer together. Um, that led that work then led to another framework called high performance analytics, where the 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 challenge was how do I take iterative algorithms like logistic regressions and optimizations that need to pass through the data many, many times. Um, how do I do those at scale on big data in a distributed framework? Um, and after that came a new use case and said, okay, and we don't did a lot of this with distributed in-memory processing. And then came another use case. I have large uh, uh, set of data and I have many, many users that just need to do relatively simple analytics. Uh, visualizations, um, simple summarizations, but it needs to be fast. And we don't want to build OLAP cubes and pre-aggregations. Just can you run on the raw data and make this interactive? And that was the the laser server framework that uh, we built, and that was the precursor to SAS Via. So, so now with Via, right? What was it like? We kind of started to have lots of platforms. There was a way of doing um, iterative high-end high advanced analytics in, in a distributed framework. And there was the traditional, the classical SaaS 9 platform. Um, there was the, what we did in visual analytics, very visual tools that work on large data. And so we said, okay, what are the commonalities here of those use cases? How can we bring this together? At the same time, where's the market going? What? How is technology evolving? What? What are sort of the themes we need to look out for, and what a market trend should 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 direct our product strategy moving forward? <clears throat> Cloud became very important. Self service, everything not everything yet, but a lot as a service. Citizen data scientists, uh, openness, but also governance and and management of 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 analytic assets, and also technical debt. You know that you accrue just by virtue of building technology over time. And so we got together in for a couple of days, actually, it was a lot of people around the company to think about what that future platform can look like, should look like, and what sort of drives the, uh, the thinking around it. What I've learned, uh, and also as my time as CTO, is it's really difficult to say what technology is going to look like 10 years from now. I get this asked a lot. So what is XYC going to look like five years from now, 10 years from now? And my own learnings have been that it, things evolve so quickly and develop so quickly. Technologies that you think would not be disruptive or not, would not be disrupted in a 10, 15-year time frame, they can be disrupted in a year now. The time horizons are much shorter. And what is to me, what is more important is when I think about building technology, what are the, as Kevin Kelly calls it, the leanings and the urgencies, the connections that you have to watch out for and the general trends. So if you develop to those trends, then your technology is adaptable and can go with those trends. 
Let right, me ask so, you a specific question. Sorry to interrupt. So, so I'm actually doing this for a customer right now. Well, one one of the the elements I'm looking at. But the 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 question is, how do you kind of set the scores on designing a product and and developing it in a way that is open to change, but not necessarily changing every other year? It's a trick, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's a trick. And if I, when I talk to customers uh, in this role or in my previous roles, um, in uh, organizations. I, they, not everybody's a digital native. You know, so somebody said, you can't out Google Google and you can't out Amazon Amazon. Most organizations came to where they are in by some form organically or inorganically. They just, that, that's their starting point right now. And they want to get to a better place. Again, it would be easy to just say, hey, let's forget about it and reinvent the business and start over. But you don't get that. You don't have the time or the, the, the degrees of freedom to start over. And then you start building on what you have. So first question is, is the future of the business or the future of the organization or the future of the industry? Will that be built on existing technology or something that is crafted out of existing technology or processes or on new technology? If it, the answer is it's new, then anything you do right now is a stopgap measure if you build on the existing Right, it's bridging something, and it's a uh, it is kind of a band aid, and you should expect that something is coming around, maybe a, a company that starts fresh and does this um, with build on a new technology, and it's just and you're going to get disrupted. Artificial intelligence is one of those technologies. It's oh, it's a lot of hype around it, but it has the potential to do that. And we've talked, for example, a while a while back about disrupting with just data and technology alone. You know, when when machines started to play Go better than the, the world's best player or uh, play chess better than the best chess program that our species was able to build over more than a decade, uh, then you go, wow. Well, if we can do that, then maybe I can just look at a bunch of um, insurance contracts and let's... Um, machine learning and AI run over it and I will create the best insurance underwriter in the world, an algorithm. Yeah. And so that thinking is, oh, all I need is data and technology and I can start a business and I can disrupt the incumbents. It's not quite playing out this way because he still turns out as valuable as data are, he'd still need domain knowledge and experience is very difficult to replace with data points, especially with data points that were collected in the past and that are prologue for the future. So that was a long-winded answer to the one part of your question. The other part is going back to what are the what are the tendencies and the urgencies of technologies? To me, it's connectivity. Connect over collect. Simple example is if you think about data in the cloud, is it, will it be more important in the future to have connectivity to all that data or to collect it in a place? Again, we're back to data movement. So if we accept multi-cloud as the reality that not everybody will be just in one cloud for an organization, but they will continue to have data on premises in multiple clouds, then maybe the focus should be on connecting over collecting. So connectivity is one of those urgencies, one of those trends. Another one is automation. We've always automated. It's almost like 
innate curiosity drives us to, I don't want to do this a second time if I've done it before, <laughs> you know. And now automation is in a somewhat different domain, in a different space. Now we can automate the driving of vehicles, the diagnosis of medical images, the writing of uh, language, the reading of language, the translating of language. These are things that feel very different because that takes a lot of brain. So now we're automating in a different domain. Um, so that's that's fundamentally different. And then we're automating based on data. And I think it is going to be a necessity that we automate more on data because our current approach to becoming more data-driven that focuses a lot on building models, like they have data science teams that understand that that how to do this really, really well, doesn't give us the scale we need. Not all of us are musicians, many of us are not. We all, many of us enjoy music, have a sense of music, uh, we can have a conversation around music and we understand some basics of the language of music. We can understand the beat and maybe a key. We understand minors, minors and major keys. It's kind of, there is, there is a script to it that helps us communicate about it. And we need the same thing about data. Some people call it data literacy. Um, and it can't just be, if data is that important in our world, in our lives, that it's left to a group of highly trained people who know how to speak the language, right? That's like in the 13th, in the, or in medieval times when only a certain group, the scribes were able to write. And you would rely on them to copy books and to... Yeah, and their interpretation of what they hear, right? Didn't scale. The lack of. <laughs> but once it scaled, yeah. once we had a printing press, yeah. it was revolutionary, changed everything. So data literacy means that everyone has a sort of an understanding of a forecast, a prediction, uh, what a distribution is like, you know? And so these, these basic things, um, that, that, will, that will go a long way into to what I call you know, the democratization of technology and the democratization of data. But even so, even if we all speak the language of data, we will need a lot of automation to handle the processes that depend on data. Um, when so much is now translated from a, it's mapped from a analog and physical world into a digital world, turns into bits and bytes, how do we do that? You know, um, there has to be automation. And so we're gonna see system analytics, AI, maybe drop a little bit lower into those systems, in the middle layers, to do a lot of the work for us without requiring that we have degrees in data science. So that's another tendency, automation, and then, you know, intelligence. Would you then say then that the goal here is really to extract insights that allow better and faster decisions? And to me, analytics is, uh, and I don't want to step on my discipline, but it is an intermediary. It's between data and decision. It's between data and intelligence. And, uh, to get that insight, you have to do something with that insight, right? One, for example, example I, I sometimes use, if if I can tell a customer service representative that there's a, a 0.75 probability that the individual he or she's interacting with right now is going to leave the company, is maybe stopping a subscription. Um, 
that's based on a churn model. That's data science. That's a model built on data that yields that prediction. That's analytics. Highly valuable. Not a question is, now what? What do I do with that information? How do I? How does this translate into my next action as the customer service representative? And that's what a decision is. And organizations make these micro decisions, important decisions. But you know, it's not like am I am I opening another subsidiary in another country, or am I completely diversifying the portfolio? Exactly. These are decisions about the business you run every day. The business Absolutely. you're in. They make millions and millions of these decisions every day. And so my just cause I always, is how do I improve lives through better decisions? How can we make those decisions better? Analytics is a key in that. But analytics is not the only way in which you can improve decisions. And what does, what does it mean to have a better decision? It could be it's more accurate. Even if it takes longer, it could be faster. Or there could be other dimensions to the decision. That means the logical kind of end result isn't necessarily what the data tells you, but because you know of something else, cognitively, you can take that into into consideration and make a decision that deviates from it, but an informed decision. So, So speaking of decisions, Oliver, so now we're kind of heading towards the end of your 19 years. At some point, you get to make the decision to leave SaaS and to join Single Store where you are now. What was the driver? Because, you know, those decisions don't come easily, I would imagine. Um, but it was a, another significant moment in your life. So what do you want to share of, of that of that process? I don't I don't quite agree with you there, Hanley. Those decisions do come easily in the end. It takes time to build up to the decisions. And there's many things that weigh into it and many factors that are being considered. But when I come to the point of making the, having to make a decision, I will. Gotcha. Okay. And then I don't look back. Understood. Okay, so so at the point of making the decision, it was easy to do, but it was obvious the process to get there. Uh, it's emotional. I always joke that I have no emotions I'm aware of. I also have no sense of humor I'm aware of. But um, we all have emotions, but we all necessarily don't have a sense. <laughs> um, it's disorienting, highly disruptive. Uh, you getting used to. Um, operating a certain way, working a certain way. Um, and what what part of that will survive a decision and what will change? Um, but when I think about, you know, deciding to, I want to study now statistics among statisticians, that's disorienting. And I did not know how much of my prior prep would actually transfer. And how much was I just in the, you know, a little cross-eyed about how much of a biometrician I actually was because I compared myself to people, to to peers who decided to study forest science for the forestry part, not for the math part of it. So it, it's disorienting in this way and it's challenging, but the uh, it's liberating at the same time, right? Um, I wish I had made this step 15 years ago because there is a incredible environment around technology that I want to participate in. Um, I'm all about growth, personal growth, company growth. Uh, and in the second half of my career at SAS, I stepped into leadership roles and I 
sort of grew into how do you lead teams, how do you lead organizations, how do you lead company. I don't to say I ran SaaS, but I had a pretty big permit um, at SaaS as CEO and CTO. And I want to apply that. I want to feel that growth, and I want to. I, I want to be uh, part of deciding and 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 helping that growth. And at Single Store, I can do that at a scale that I could. I was not able to do at a, at a very established, mature company. Right? You cannot. Uh, you cannot grow a, a 44-year-old company by double digits from one year to the next. There are limits, and there's internal friction and um, sand in the system and, and complexity simply from being as large and as mature as you are, right? Having that many products and having that many customers and having an established customer base puts limits on your ability to transform. And I've transformed a, a lot in my time at SaaS and got it, I think, to a great place. We talked about Baya. I'm very proud of what the teams at SaaS have done with it and where it is. Um, when I think back, when I had the most fun was building these innovative teams that are mission and purpose-driven. And these missions were critical for the success of the company. We knew we had to create a platform that plays well in the cloud space, that brings analytics to the cloud, um, that embraces and works with open source in ways we had not done before. That was breaking glass, that was breaking eggs, that was changing mindset. Um, and we didn't have a blueprint for doing this. And so building that and working with the teams and seeing that to fruition, seeing that through, is incredibly rewarding. And Single Store is incredible, has incredible technology and a wonderful company at a great stage in its growth path towards a grown-up company. And being able to participate and help nurture and build that innovation culture and drive that innovation uh, at, at Single Store and helping that company grow in that way is absolutely fascinating. It's exciting to me. It's a challenge. Um, I feel very challenged by this organization in a, in a really, really good way. Um, and the, the quality of it, the people, the quality of the engineering, and I have my work cut out for me. Up to the fight. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's another growth opportunity and learning opportunity for both of us, for me and for the company. And I will prove myself the single store as the and that, and I approached this challenge, you know, like like others before. I said I bring some skills um, to this that are probably needed, or that I help that are helpful, that that uh, that are valuable. And then there are skills that I will have to grow, skills that I have to build. Can, can I ask something just at this point, right? So so what, what, one of the questions I normally ask guests is to set the scene as you know the value derived from data and analytics is ubiquitous it's well understood and it's well accepted right that not only for competitive advantage but in in a lot of cases survival itself yeah and i believe that it is the collective responsibility of all data professionals to kind of pick up the mantle and go how do we scale the value realized from data whether in enterprise or society at large you know how will you as chief innovation officer at single store pick up that mantle and and 
scale the value that organizations realize from using data as a competitive advantage? Great question, Hadley. We still see a lot of friction out there around data and analytics. Um, we're past the point where organizations are asking, is that necessary or not? Do I need to do this? They know they need to do this. But again, they're building on what they currently have. And there's a lot of friction. There's a lot of silos. And um, so is it better to connect silos? Is it better to connect that transactional system to an analytic data warehouse? Uh, or is it is the right way to break it down? And we have an opportunity to reduce friction in the system, to take complexity out, make analytics simpler and more embedded and more powerful, bring it to every application that, that is that uses data should have some form of analytics into it. And that is that democratization takes a, a lot of forms. It is more training. It is more data literacy. It's we need more data scientists, but we also need different technology that works for the way organizations need to use data analytics today. It is fast. It is real time. It is low latency. I need the answer soon or at the right time. If you run a batch job overnight and you tell me tomorrow, it is too late. It needs to be more contextual. It needs to be more situationally aware. So there's a lot of things that we, we need to do in order to help this transformation and help organizations along. Um, and to me, it, it starts with a bias for speed. It's a very simple concept. And you know, I learned this when we went, when I worked on multi-threaded code. If you have multi-threaded code, it's easy to run it in a single thread. Scaling down is easy. If you have single-threaded code, it's hard to run in multiple threads. You end up rewriting most of the time. If you have latency in the system or a turnaround time of 200 milliseconds, it's very difficult to get to 10 milliseconds. But if you're at 10 milliseconds, you can be slow. It's it's that simple. And uh, if you have a bias for this low latency, high concurrency, fast, um, real time, it drives complexity naturally out of the system. Because you don't just bolt on and yeah, this is already yeah, this is already uh, that much overhead, so it doesn't matter if we add a little bit more. And that's what excites me about the single store technology, right? To be in the sweet spot where you can be both transactional and analytical. And I think that's the systems that the applications of the future will be built on. Um, and it stops using using a transactional system that doesn't do analytics well. Okay, that's cause too much friction. Okay, so I use an enterprise data warehouse and prepare all the data and analytic tables. Well, that doesn't have the concurrency you need. So it's unsatisfactory in both worlds. Again, to the point that I made earlier, maybe we need to imagine the next level of application, the next iteration of, the, of our industry or to, be, to be using different technologies. In the meantime, you can augment your existing technologies with this. You can get there through that. It's not just a rip and replace and I need to throw everything out and, and use different technology. There's steps that you can do, right? And for example, to how can I use a caching system, a low latent system, in addition to the things that I have to take operational risk out of the system? On It's, a, it's an evolution towards a future state. And 
So to be part of that evolution, but also to think big and what does that hill look like beyond the next hill we're climbing? To me, as a uh, as an innovator, is absolutely exciting. And the ability to bring data and analytics together, as I mentioned at the beginning, moving data to the analytics is the wrong thing to do. Connect the analytics with the data. Um, that is the right way to do serverless architectures, uh, separation of storage and compute. These are, we're just at the beginning of this. We think we have all the answers right in front of us. No, we're writing that chapter. But there's a few things that I just want to call out, right? Number one is connectivity over collection, right? And the importance of taking the analytics to the data, not the other way around, right? But also what I hear you say is almost, and we had a conversation about this the other day, but the way that I see it is creating the platform for innovation that where where business experts right don't need to worry about number one um the guys in in a dark room in the corner writing code to do stuff where they simply get access to the output, but also you know creating this data platform that is quick, fast, secure, accessible, you know where they have the tools to sit on top of this data. In fact, tools that connects them to data where it lives um, and they can then use their, their business brain to answer questions that they know exists in the business. So they're actually using data on a platform that is fast to answer questions in their day-to-day jobs, you know, inform those micro decisions. Perfect. And add to it and build with it and build on top of it and build on top of it. I think we've seen the revolution in low code, no code, and the things that can be done today that 10 years ago wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be possible. We also see the building blocks of building technology are much bigger, right? And cloud computing helped with that. You think in bigger chunks of, of technology, you start a lot higher in the stack, closer to the business use case, the application, the problem you want to solve, rather than being down there in the, in the security layer and, and, and thinking about the system calls. Yeah. So, so all of that, that has been fascinating, but I've, uh, I've got one more question for you. Um, so, so again, to your point earlier, I am, I'm certainly no creator of music, but I am a lover of music. I think it's widely known that you at least play the guitar. Um, so you're a very musical guy, but if I could ask you for one song and the artist that has been kind of memorable or that is memorable to you, do you want to, Kind of give us the name of the artist and the, and 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 the song and why it is important to you. Oh sure, um, yeah, I, I do love music. I always say a day without music is a lost day. I remember when I was when I was young and I studied at, uh, uh, in in Germany. I would always study music with music while I was concentrating. There was music playing, um, and I, I do play guitar. And I also, my pandemic hobby was to pick up recording music and mixing. Uh, enjoy that a lot. As again, I'm not an audio engineer, but I'm getting better. I'm yeah. getting better. And thanks to YouTube. <laughs> yeah, <and> man. <laughs> stuff that's out there. I'm picking up new it's tricks every, every day. And, uh, and I'm loving, I just love the process. I love the process of getting better. And anyone interested in digital transformation, check out home recording. That's it. That's it in the flesh. I mean, cool. You can, you know, with a with a computer, an audio interface, a mic, and you got a studio and a, and a digital audio workstation. You got it. It's amazing what you can do today. Yeah. So I played guitar when I was younger. I started when I was sixteen. That was after I played flute and uh, 
violin and cello and didn't stick with those instruments and I was tired of it. And these instruments, those instruments have been picked by my parents for me. And I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And they said, okay, give it one more try. This time you get to choose the instrument. I was 16 and I picked the guitar, uh, Western guitar, Western acoustic, and I played for a while and I stopped. And then I came over to the U.S. and uh, I was just, I think, in my first year here, 92 or so. And the dance by Garth Brooks came on. Our lives are better left to chance. I could have missed the pain, but I'd have had to miss the The intro is piano, but there's beautiful guitar parts to it. And I love the, I love the song, I love the lyrics, I love the message. Um, I was just getting into contemporary country at the time. And I thought to myself, that is the song I want to learn how to play again. And that made me pick up the guitar again. And so I've been playing, I've been playing ever since. That was 92, 93. And then I had some form of a midlife crisis uh, in the 2000s, and uh, I I was weighing between getting an electric guitar and a motorcycle. And so my my wife figured this one out for me real quick. <laughs> so I got an electric guitar, and I had played acoustic guitar for a long time, right? And I thought, how hard can it be? You just you know, plug it in and turn it up to 11 and it'll be awesome. And wow, it was bad. I said, okay, there's something to be learned here. There's a process. All that Western guitar I've been playing, that acoustic, there is something else that you need to know about the technique of playing electric guitar. And so I got myself a guitar teacher, found one. And to this day, 15 years later, so he's still every week getting guitar lesson for my friend, Mike Krause. And it's it's awesome. It's one of the things I really, really hate to miss, you know, if the schedule doesn't allow. It's a, it's a nice break in the week. It's getting my head into a different space. It's picking up an instrument. And it's being humbled once a week that no matter how good you think you are or how much you've improved, there's, there are hills to climb. And that's the difference between me and a professional musician. And that's why Mike does what he does so well on the guitar. And that's what, you know, what I do, but I love the process and um, I'll never be, a, I'll never be a professional musician, but I will get better at it. I love doing woodworking some time ago and I knew I was not going to be a carpenter, but I have some things like the lamp that you see in the background around the house. You made that yourself. And it, it was good enough for me on yeah, the table. It sits on and I made some furniture and I got to a point where I was happy with it. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, and awesome. Now I moved on doing something else. Cool. Well, Oliver, it was a fantastic conversation. And thank you so, so, so much for joining us today. And yeah, we will uh, we will no doubt cross paths again. Did you find the essence of Oliver Henry? I believe we did. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a fun journey. It was an absolute fun journey. Just getting to know, you know, what what is behind you and and what has influenced you over your life. And I hope you enjoyed it too. I did. Thanks for having me, Helen. Oh, it's good seeing you. Thanks. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, then please like, share, and subscribe. Original music created by Solar Kid, produced by Spotcaster at Boabob, and branding by Victoria at Generic, a Moaxan company. Music